We are in Revelation chapter 11. The, 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 the mighty angel with the little scroll. We don't know exactly what the scroll contains, but most likely the scroll is unfolding what we're going to read in chapter 11. Most likely the little scroll is unfolding our understanding of chapter 11. Remember, this has to do with the believers. So the judgments typically focus on the non-believers who are going to take the mark, although we have not seen that yet. And the asides focus on the believers and what is happening to them. That's what we're going to see in chapter 11, verse 1. Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, and I was told to get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and the ones who worship there. But do not measure the outer courtyard of the temple. Leave it out because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for a hundred or for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and completely consumes their enemies. If anybody wants to harm them, they must be killed this way. These two have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the time that they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague whenever they want. And when they have completed their testimony, the beast, which we have not seen yet, that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their corpses will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified. For three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, and language will look on their corpses because they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate them, even sending gifts to each other because these two prophets had tormented, had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a tremendous fear seized those who were watching them. Then they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies stared at them. Just then a major earthquake took place, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has come to God. The third is coming quickly. We basically have a temple and two witnesses that are prophesying for 42 months or 1,260 days or also three and a half years. They're all synonymous and equivalent of each other. The futurist takes all this literal. There's going to be literally a temple. There's literally two witnesses. They literally breathe fire. They literally die. They literally taken up into heaven. The temple. Many futurists believe that this temple is the future temple that is going to be rebuilt. And that is this in, the, in the second coming of Jesus Christ or precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ and opens the door for it. The problem is if we're pre-70 AD, no Jew reading this or any Gentile would be reading it as a rebuilding of the temple because they haven't even seen the destruction of the temple. If we are talking about post-70 AD, which many people believe that John was written after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed in Israel, then when we're reading about the trampling of the temple, most Jews would have interpreted this as the Gentiles literally trampling the temple and destroying it. And so they still wouldn't see this as a rebuilding of a temple. They would see it as their temple was trampled and destroyed, and Revelation is telling them about that, that it happened. 
the original audience would have not seen this in any kind of way as a rebuilding, nor when we read their writings of the early church fathers do they describe this as a rebuilding in any kind of a way. The other problem with the seeing this as a rebuilding of the temple is nowhere in Revelation does Revelation ever say that the temple is going to be rebuilt, nor does the Bible ever say the temple is going to be rebuilt, ever. There is one brief place Well, it's not brief. It's actually multiple chapters. But there's one place in the entire Bible that predicts a rebuilding of the temple. And that is in Ezekiel chapters 40 through the end of the book. And describes rebuilding the temple. Now, this is after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So this would be describing the second temple rebuild, which is what... Um, Zerubbabel during this return in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah would rebuild and then the temple that Herod re-DIY'd and that's the temple of Jesus. The problem is when you read the description of the temple in Ezekiel it doesn't look anything like the temple of Jesus. It's bigger, it has more gates, it's more decked out. But what's interesting is this isn't talking about any temple. This is the belief that I take firmly. Most scholars take this view, is that in Ezekiel it's never, ever, ever really described as a temple. It's never said to be a temple. It's descri- Well, actually it is said to be a temple. But when it's described, it talks about it in such metaphorical language. What is interesting is that Christ fulfills that temple. His own body fulfills that temple. And we've talked about this before, but the Bible makes it very, very, very clear that Ezekiel's temple is not a rebuilding of a future temple, but it's Christ. Okay? Because first it says that there are multiple gates allowing multiple nations in, and a river is coming out of the side of the temple and flowing to the entire world. So when we get to John, Christ says the temple is his father's house. And then he says in John chapter 2, the temple is his body. He literally says the temple is his body. And he says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so when we see that temple get destroyed, we see Jesus on the cross and he's punctured in the side and the water comes out of his side, literally, and it looks just like the temple image of Ezekiel. And I have a much longer discussion on this in my Ezekiel study and in my Bible overview study. And so we see the water coming out of Jesus' side, which matches up with Ezekiel's temple. And we're told that the prince sits in the gate of the temple, which the prince and the king are never allowed to go into the temple pre-Christ. And yet we're now seeing Christ, who is the prince, the king, and the temple. And Jesus says, I am the gate, and no one enters. And over and over he says, I am the light, which is in the temple. I am the bread, which is in the temple. I am, and he keeps saying all these things, I am the temple, I am the temple, I am the temple, in all different kinds of ways. When we get to Ephesians with Paul, Paul tells us that we are the house of God. We are the temple of God. And then when we get to Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us we are the temple of God. And we are the body of Christ, which Jesus says his body is the temple. And then when we get to Revelation, we don't see any rebuilding of the temple anywhere in Revelation. In fact, what we see is a temple just being trampled. But then when we get to the end of Revelation, we're specifically told there is no temple. Because Jesus is the temple. And so the Bible makes it, and also, kind of going back, I should start with this. God specifically told David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he didn't want a temple. And he never wanted a temple. And if he ever wanted a temple, he would have asked for a temple. But he didn't ask for a temple, therefore he doesn't want a temple. And so David and Solomon were out of line in building a temple. 
and temple was more of a pagan thing to do than it was a biblical thing to do. God wanted the tabernacle, and I talk about that in 2 Kings chapter 5 when Solomon actually builds the temple. And so the Bible's made it very clear that it doesn't want temple. Even Stephen, when he gives a speech in the book of Acts, says that you people built a temple, and God does not live in temples, but God lives in us when the Holy Spirit's coming down on them. The Bible's made it very clear over and over again that it doesn't want a temple, that it allowed a temple in the same way that God didn't want a king, but he allowed a king because the people asked for it, and he gave them what they wanted because he gives you over into your desires, like Romans chapter 2 says. It's really hard to see this as something that God is looking forward to or proclaiming is going to happen, the rebuilding of the temple, when just like a handful of chapters later, we're going to see God literally saying, and there was no temple because Jesus is the temple. So in the first coming, it says, Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple and I am the temple. And then the second coming, it says, there's no temple because Jesus is the temple. So there's really no room or no place for a temple in any kind of way. And even Jesus says there's coming a day where you will not have to worship in one place, in one place only. Everywhere you go, you can worship because you are the temple, so to speak. And so it's, it's really hard to see this as foreshadowing a second coming of a temple when the Bible really has no room for a temple in any kind of a way. That's the problem with this stuff. Even if the temple in Jerusalem is mine, I think this is a metaphorical idea of the people of God. Um, this setting is, um, there, there's a symbolic imagery. So when we look at this temple, we're told that there's the temple itself and then the outer courtyard. And that he was to measure the inner courtyard, but not the outer courtyard. And so there are different views on how to um, view the temple versus the courtyard. If you're supposed to measure the temple, but not the courtyard, there's this idea that they don't belong together. And then we're told that the people in the temple are preserved and sealed, but that the outer courtyard is going to be trampled, and that has been going to be given over to the Gentiles, but those in the temple are going to be protected from the Gentiles trampling them. And so this has led people to view the temple as symbolic of one group of people and the courtyard is symbolic of a completely different group of people. And so the first view is that this temple altar and the worshipers refer to the Jewish remnant that will be protected by Yahweh and the outer courtyard and the holy city refer to Israel as a whole that are being given over to the Gentiles as a judgment for their sins. So some people say, okay, the temple and the altar represent the Jews that come to Christ and they accept the Messiah. And they're sealed. And the 144,000, therefore they're protected. But the outer court is the, gent the Jews who do not accept Christ. And they're given over to the Gentiles in a judgment to be trampled. And that would kind of make sense. Because the temple and the courtyard is a Jewish thing. And so it makes sense that these are both belong to the Jews. But one is the believers and one is not the believers. The problem with this view is that the temple and the outer court are the same thing. The Bible has never, ever, ever distinguished these as two separate things. As if, like, the, the more holy Jews get to go in the temple and the slightly bad Jews don't get to go in and they only get the courtyard. The Bible has made it very, 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 very clear over and again in Exodus when it was built and Leviticus when the requirements were given for entering the temple and Numbers when we see the actual execution of using the temple or the, sorry, the tabernacle. So when Exodus gives a um, description of how to do the tabernacle, Leviticus tells you how to enter the tabernacle. 
and um, when numbers we see them actually using the tabernacle and then even with the temple throughout Samuel and that kind of stuff our kings we see very clearly that no one no one can get into the courtyard unless they have faith in God a part of the Abrahamic covenant with an animal sacrifice no one can get in unless they're a believer so this view collapses when you understand that the courtyard, even the courtyard, is excluded to all unbelievers. And only through an animal sacrifice, only a part of the Abrahamic covenant, only if you have faith in God are you allowed in the courtyard. And then, of course, only the priests are allowed in the holy place. So this doesn't fit that view. The courtyard and the temple belong to the believers and the believers only. No unbeliever would have ever been allowed in. In fact, in the, first, in the Second Testament, when we see the temple... If any unbeliever ever entered into the courtyard, they were instantly killed. There were actually signs telling you that if you enter, you will be killed. And the Gentiles who had faith in God were allowed in the courtyard, but only in a certain fraction of the courtyard. And if they went into the inner, the courtyard closer to the temple, there were signs telling them that even they would be killed if they were not circumcised and all that kind of stuff. And so they took this very seriously. So no Jew, no Jew, no Gentile would have seen this as the courtyard belongs to the unbelievers and the temple belongs to the believers. Because every Gentile who had any kind of faith would, would remember those signs very clearly. <laughs> those signs would scare the crap out of them because nobody wants to die. And the Jews, had, that was the only time the Jews ever had permission from Rome to kill somebody without a trial is if a non-believer entered the courtyard. So this is very serious. So nobody would interpret it that way. The second view is that the temple and altar and the worshipers refer to the Jews and Gentile believers in Christ who are protected, and the outer courtyard and the Holy City refer to the non-believing Jews. But this runs in the same problem. The courtyard and the temple are seen as one thing, not two parts, and no unbelievers were allowed in the courtyard. So this means that the only possible way to view this is that the people in the temple and the people in the courtyard are both believers. So that brings us to the third view, that the temple and the courtyard are seen as the whole. They're all believers. They're one body of Christ, as we've been told in the Second Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and Ephesians chapter 2, and 1 Peter chapter 2 that the 144,000 and the great multitude are all included, and whether you're Jew or Gentile, all of the temple and all the courtyard of the, the believers. Now notice, it does not say that the people in the, court, the courtyard is going to be trampled because they rejected God. It doesn't say they're going to be trampled as a judgment from God. It doesn't say that they're going to be trampled because God is against them or they didn't accept. It just says they're going to be trampled. And so this leaves a third view where the people in the temple and the people in the courtyard are Jews and Gentiles, both of faith. It's just the people of the temple are people who are not going to die for their faith, like many of us and most Americans, but the people in the courtyard are the ones who are going to be martyred, and they're going to die in their faith. And for whatever reason, God has allowed some to be martyred and some believers who are not. And we can ask the question, why? And we have no answer, right? We don't know why some people die and some people don't. We don't know why some people die young and some people die old. And we don't know why some people die in violent ways and some people don't. And we don't know why some people are blessed with a privileged life of, by privilege I mean just blessings and protection, and why some people go through hell for being a believer and in dying brutal ways. 
But we don't know why, but all we know is that. And so most likely what God is saying here is that some believers are going to be trampled and some are not going to be. Some are going to not be um, taken over by the, the world and some are in a physical sense. What's interesting is nowhere does it say that the people in the temple are sealed. That's kind of an assumption that people have read into it, that the people in the temple are sealed and the people in the courtyard are not. It doesn't say that. It just says the temple will not be trampled and the courtyard will. That's all it says. It doesn't say that some are not protected by God. I believe this view fits the context of the entire Bible as well as the idea of the temple and and the best way possible. Now notice that it says this temple and this altar belong in the holy city. It doesn't say Jerusalem. Nowhere does it say we're in Jerusalem here. Now, some people have said the holy city means Jerusalem, but that isn't necessarily true. Holy city just means unique and unlike anything else. In fact, when we see the word holy city again and again and again and again, it's going to refer to the believers. It's just going to refer to the believers. So this could be Jerusalem or it could not be Jerusalem. Um, We don't know. Yet Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in Revelation 7, refers to the people of God as the holy city. This is the cosmic mountain idea, where God in Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2 talks about a cosmic mountain will be established one day, and the people will come to that cosmic mountain, and they will dwell with God. And so we are told in Isaiah chapter 2 and in Revelation 7 that the holy city is the people of God. And in both of those places, it never is said to be Jerusalem. It's never said to be Jerusalem, but rather the holy city are people. And so this could be Jerusalem. It could not be Jerusalem, or it refers to just all the believers around the world. They will be given permission, the Gentiles, to trample this courtyard for 42 months or for 1,260 days. This is the first time that we now have a very solid number. Yes, we talked about the five months there, but that was just kind of a general five months And it wasn't rooted. So this is where people get the view that there's three and a half years. So we have a three and a half years, and that's the halfway point through the seven-year tribulation, and then we're going to get another three and a half years. And so the fact that they're going to be killed by the beast, and the beast then comes into major power, suggests that this is the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Because we're going to see many, many other things to come after they're killed and taken up into heaven. So that means we're not in the back three and a half. We're in the front three and a half. Now, so this is the first time we have a number. So a couple of things is first, it took us 11 chapters to get to any kind of a number, any kind of a chronology of dating or a length of time and any kind of a sense that matches up with seven years in any kind of way. But the other problem, though, is this number is still disembodied. We still don't have the number seven, a seven-year tribulation anywhere in Revelation. You will never see that. We're not told that this is the first three and a half years. We're not told that this is the second three and a half years. This could be the middle three and a half years, and there were some years before it and years after it, for all we know. I mean, you can't just assume that this is the first three and a half or the last three and a half. It could be the middle three and a half, and then you've got like one and a half or two or whatever on the front and the back end. This is still a floating disembodied number that doesn't match up with any kind of the clock starts here on August 12th, 19 whatever, or it ends here and that kind of stuff. And yes, if this is way, 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 way in the far in the future and God's not giving specific dates, 
you still would expect us to say this is the beginning of the seven years. It's a seven-year total thing, and this is the beginning, and the clock started with this specific event in Revelation. This three and a half years comes from the three and a half years that the Seleucid Greek king Antiochus IV ruled over and oppressed the Jews right before the coming of Christ. This was a major event in Jewish history. And the book of Daniel 7 through 12 talks about the coming of this Antiochus IV and how he's going to oppress the people and desecrate the temple. Daniel's not focusing on some future coming of the Messiah. Daniel's focused on the coming of Antiochus IV. Every single chapter, chapter 7 ends with the coming of Antiochus IV. And then it recapitulates in chapter 8 with the coming of Antiochus IV. And then it recapitulates again in chapter 10 with the coming of Antiochus IV. And then it recapitulates again um, with the coming of Antiochus IV. Then when you get to chapter 11 and 12, everybody, even the people who take the 70th week view is the last end times of Revelation, everybody believes that it ends with Antiochus IV. So if every single chapter is ending with Antiochus IV, then that is what everything about Daniel is leading to every single Jew would have interpreted it as talking about Antiochus IV because Antiochus IV, what the Holocaust is to Jews of our time period, Antiochus IV was to Jews of that time period. They still remember Antiochus IV and they remember it through what festival? Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the biggest holiday in all of Judaism. Antiochus IV came in and massacred the Jews. He defiled the temple. Yes, Hitler massacred the Jews, but he did not defile the temple. He did not take a pig into the temple and erect an idol and sacrifice the temple and desecrate the temple. And the Jews had to fight to take back the house of God. So yes, the Holocaust was atrocious and horrific, but not in a spiritual, cosmic, holy sense. Like when Antiochus defiled the temple with pig's blood to an idol. And that so marked them that it's to this day the biggest and largest festival ever celebrated in Judaism and it's Hanukkah. It's bigger than our Christmas and Easter put together. And, 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 and unlike Americans, we have no idea most people where Christmas and Easter even really come from. But the Jews know exactly where Hanukkah comes from. That shaped them. And what's interesting is that Antiochus IV desecrated the temple for three and a half years. 42 months, 1,260 days. Exactly three and a half years. And if you're a Jew who lives and breathes Hanukkah, and that has shaped your identity, like the Holocaust has shaped their identity today, and they cannot forget, you're a Jew. And your identity is rooted in Tychus, defiling the temple, and that that will never happen again. Every time you see three and a half, it will always remind you of Hanukkah, always remind you of Antiochus IV. And no Jew can read this three and a half, divorced from that. And even John is a Jew shaped by it. Jesus is a Jew shaped by it. He, why would you use a number three and a half, and everybody's going to immediately think Antiochus IV, and then not divorce it from that. You would either be poorly communicating something, or you would have to go out of your way and say, it doesn't mean that. It means something else. I think what it's saying here is that this refers to a desecration of the temple by the Gentiles, and in metaphorical sense, Antiochus IV is a typology. Yeah. 
most scholars believe that this three and a half refers to a temporary amount of hell on earth. It's not literally three and a half years because numbers are metaphorical in Revelation. But it would invoke the hell on earth and the desecration of God's holiness in their mind. But it didn't last forever. They eventually retook the temple and cleansed the temple. And in that, in that, in that, um, and it actually was an eight-day battle. He had desecrated for three and a half years. And that eight days, one day worth of oil lasted for eight days miraculously. That's why there's eight days in Hanukkah. And the menorah went from seven branches, according to the Exodus, to eight branches after Hanukkah. They would see this as the Gentiles rained hell on us. For a long period of time, desecrating our most holy place and violating us, but it only lasted for a short period of time before God took it back again. And I think that's the idea that John's trying to communicate here, is once again, the Gentiles are going to rain hell down on the believers. He's going to desecrate their holiness, but it's only going to last for a temporary amount of time. I don't think the number three, the fact that the 42, 1,000, and three and a half are all disembodied, they're floating numbers. Even if you take the 70th week of Daniel, nowhere are we going into that. And he says, hey, this is the final 70th week. Hey, this is the beginning of the seven years. I, I just really struggle with God as a master communicator who has not given any reference for these dates and times that they're meant to be literal. He doesn't ever connect you. That if that is, if that last 70th week of Daniel, and if you're completely lost, that's okay. Daniel, that chapter is so confusing. It is the one, the most complicated chapters in the entire Bible. And I literally mean that. But if you want a reference, go back to Daniel chapter um, 9 and 10 and, and listen to that. And I'll, it, it's still, you're going to have to listen to it a couple of times. Like, even when I studied this, I spent over a year just rereading things because it's complicated. But I'll at least give you a framework there to go with. But if that's if you take that as referring to the final seven-year tribulation at the end of time, I still would expect God to say, "Hey, this is the final week of Daniel, the seventieth week. This is the seven-year tribulation. This is the final week between the four hundred eighty years and the thousands of years that come between that." Like because they say four hundred eighty-three years happen, and then God paused the clock, and we've now lived for a couple thousand years, maybe a couple more, depending on when Christ comes back. And then God unpauses the clock, like playing chess, and 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 then we go into the seventieth week. And nowhere, nowhere is there any hint that the only time we ever get a seven-year period is in Daniel seven. But we don't see that anywhere in, in Jesus talking about it. We don't see Paul talking about this final seven-year tribulation. We don't see Peter. We don't see John. Nowhere does it ever talk about that seven-year tribulation except for that one place in Daniel. And you would think God would say, hey, that's it. That's it. That's what it's talking about. It's finally being fulfilled. Because every time Jesus fulfills something, the, the writers say, this is to fulfill what the prophets say. And then it quotes an actual passage. But God never does that here. And I really, really, really struggle with that. I really struggle with the fact that God never says, hey, this is it. And then these numbers are just so floating and so disembodied. Now listen to me very carefully. Very, very, very carefully. My goal is not to change anybody's view. That is not what God has called me to. So if you feel like I'm like pushing against you or you feel like... And I'm not up here to say... This is the right view. I'm going to debate you. I'm going to win you over. 
that is not my goal. If you want to keep holding on to another view that disagrees with me, that's fine. I have lots of brothers and sisters in Christ that are very intelligent and very godly, and they disagree with me, and I love them. And I love hanging out with them, and I love talking to them. I love watching their videos on YouTube. I love reading their books. Okay, My goal is not to change your view. My goal is to hope to open a deeper understanding of Revelation. Many people in here don't really know what view they have. They don't know really all these intricate out. My hope is to help you just see the absolute glory of God and the absolute way that um, God is just working throughout humanity history and focus on the Lamb who redeems us and saves us from the judgment, but a God who also loves you so much that he's going to judge the world that you live in that has just rained hell down on believers and, and ruined everything, and how he's going to reclaim the earth. That's my goal. My goal is just to make Christ proclaim. Of course, I'm going to share my view as I go through this, but I do, and the only agenda that I might have with my view is not to try to change your mind, but just to show you that there are other views. We have grown up so much with the futurist view, and maybe the futurist is right. I'm willing to open up that. I told you very clearly, too. I believe that my view fits in with the futurist view. I believe in a typology where God is doing it again and again and again and again. Therefore, my view opens up to the futurist very well. I believe that God could do it one final big global time and that this is now and future. I'm not anti-futurist. I just am kind of like, I'm hesitant that we have an entire book of a Bible that only speaks to a small group of people in a seven-year period in the future. I believe that the Bible speaks to us now. So if I have one goal, my goal is just to help you understand how Revelation speaks to you now. The futures might be right. I'm willing to say that. But I don't think it can be just the futurists because I have a hard time with the book of Revelation not speaking to us. And yes, you might say, well, yeah, but it's letting us know when that day comes. Yeah, but if I and my children die before that day comes, then it kind of was like, oh, well, I might as well just read the last two chapters, right? And so that's kind of how I feel. So I'm not here to change any views. I'm not here to say anybody's wrong. I'm just saying, here's an alternative view that we haven't heard a lot growing up in America with the Left Behind series. And my hope is to help you understand how Revelation can speak to you now and today. And, and maybe there will be a seven-year final tribulation. And that's my goal. Because we're all brothers and sisters. And this book is complicated. And who am I to say I'm right and everybody is absolutely wrong? So that's kind of my heart's desire here as we go through this. If I resist you or that way, it's not in a you're wrong kind of a sense. It's like... This is the way that I see it. And, and I'm going to be honest when, what I, why I struggle with certain views, because that's what I struggle with. But I'm not saying, therefore, because I struggle, it's definitely wrong. There's certain things that we go to the, 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 the anvil on, and that's the nature of Christ, the second coming, sin, and that kind of stuff. And so th this is the way that I understand it.